As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, who are the big winners and losers in the January transfer window and how does that affect top four and the relegation battle? We'll talk West Bromwich Albion, who've parted company with Valerian Ismail. Is Steve Bruce the man to send them back to the Premier League? And can Roy Keane get Sunderland out of trouble? We'll also talk about a big night on the old firm, an interview with Thomas Frank, really intriguing, and we look ahead to the FA Cup. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Roddy and Tom Clark. Tweedledee and Tweedle Tom, if you like. Um, <laughs> listen, loads for us to discuss. <laughs> well, it starts on fire, let's be honest. Uh, loads of us to discuss today. We'll be talking about the transfer window, what's going on at West Brom. We'll talk Roy Keane, Scotland, Thomas Frank and more. But look, let's start with, like I said a, a, a couple of days ago, a review, if you like, of the transfer window in January, a few clubs I wanted to pick out and really talk about how things affect the top four race and the bottom of the table, the relegation battle. Let's start with Arsenal. The big headline, I think, of the final day of the transfer window. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang joining Barcelona on a free transfer after leaving Arsenal. The Gabon striker signing the deal late in the window. He hasn't played for Arsenal since that disciplinary breach back in December. He scored 92 goals in 163 games uh, for the club. Also in January, Callum Chambers, Sayed Kolasinac, uh, Pablo Mari and Ainsley Maitland-Niles left either permanently or on loan. But I want to focus in on Arsenal. We'll talk Spurs and the top four as a whole. Can you list the incomings now, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I think we're going to come to... I want to come to that in a moment. But I wanted to talk about the Aubameyang thing and the fact that Arteta couldn't find a resolution to it. And it's not the first player who's who he's had issues with and there has not been a resolution found. What does this episode say to you about Arteta's Arsenal? I think this is a resolution. Mm-hmm. This is the end of a short story that started with the game podcast saying that Aubameyang needed to get out of Arsenal in early December and Mikel being a big fan listened and sorted it out. I, I think you're right that he's had issues before with other players and you know his man management has been called into question at times but actually I think this one he played perfectly it's the right decision for Aubameyang and for Arsenal it got to the point where there was no way he could come back into that team in any meaningful way yes you know you look at them drawing nil-nil against Burnley and think oh it'd be great to have Aubameyang coming on but it had gone way beyond that It's it signified far more it was symbolic of the transition between the old Arsenal and this new Arsenal which is about young players forward pressing exciting counter-attacking football at times and, and yes that doesn't always work but Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang wasn't the solution to those problems it's time for him to move on and time for Arsenal to move forward and actually I think it, this was a resolution and I think it's credit to Arteta for finishing the episode in this way it's not a resolution I'll tell you why it's not a resolution there's no improvement made to Arsenal it's I'm pretty sure is Mikel Arteta's job you had an issue with a player who is the best goal scorer at the club most mm, managers debatable. most managers in football he's a better goal scorer than him Lacazette's as good a finisher as Bobby. you've lost your mind the record speaks for itself I'm not even uh, going to go into that the point is your main goal scorer leaves the club 
Um, you've had an issue with him before that. You could have resolved it. And somehow, we don't know what happened behind the scenes, you haven't managed to. This is probably the third example of a player that you've fallen out with and you haven't managed to resolve. Now, not being funny, most football clubs, if you had an issue with the main goal scorer, it would be your job to resolve it in some way. You don't have to become friends again, but you've certainly got to get that player back out on the pitch and scoring goals. That's your job. But it's way beyond It's way beyond that, though. It symbolises far more than that. Aubameyang's kind of was the captain, but wasn't any kind of leader in any sense he, he was who made him captain Arteta did you can then correct that by going actually you've let the club down you've let the supporters down and you've let me down with the decisions that you made off the pitch and with not showing the professionalism needed you know he's got a young group of players there that may well become better finishers than Aubameyang and therefore prove him right and you know also Hugh you're a Manchester United fan Sir Alex Ferguson made his name on making bold decisions on big name players who didn't do what he wanted but what happened on Saturday Man United won and they scored loads of goals he was in a position to do that Mikel Arteta is not yeah but he also made decisions about players sometimes where he got rid of them and maybe it was ahead of their time like he got rid of players who then went on to perform far better for other clubs than I think Aubameyang will do for Barcelona I'm with Tweedledee on this um, <laughs> because I, I think it's similar it's really similar ironically to the um, Tottenham Hotspur situation this month because Antonio Conte made it very clear that what he wanted regardless of whether they got any any signings into that club he wanted Lacelso and Dumbele and Deli Ali gone from Tottenham regardless of whether they got anyone else in it was a clear out he wanted to do that Exactly the same situation with Arsenal. He wanted Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang gone regardless of whether they got any striker in. And really it's on it's on Arsenal for the poor quality of recruitment in the attacking area for not getting him a replacement. Yeah, I mean... I, I, like you're, you're bigging him up, Hugh. When, tell me the last time Aubameyang had a good game for Arsenal and you're like, wow, what a player. I'm I'm literally thinking like FA Cup final. With all due respect, that's even worse on Mikel Arteta. No, you're it's not. not. You're, not backing, an you're Aubame- not backing his corner. Aubameyang's an experienced player. He couldn't get Aubameyang to score goals. Aubameyang is an experienced player. His attitude was abysmal on the pitch. As a captain and an experienced player in that team, it's you know it's the Roy Keane argument. You don't need a manager to get you up for a game when you're playing for a big club like Arsenal. Like Aubameyang's performances weren't good enough, and his attitude was abysmal. That is not on Arteta. The tactics are on Arteta and put him in the right positions, which he did for a lot of the times. When he first came into Arsenal, when he first came into Arsenal, Aubameyang was the central pillar of his success, cutting in off that left wing and scoring goals. Yes, so he could make it work. But the relationship deteriorated and that, to me, is as much on Aubameyang as Arteta and that's why he's better off without him. And indulging that behaviour would go entirely against everything Mikel Arteta says he wants to do at Arsenal Mm. and everything he said he wanted to do since he joined, which was changing the culture of the club. Yeah, sets a terrible example to those young players as well. Seventh seventh incoming. That's, That's the truth. That he's thrown the season away over it. No. In my opinion, no. they're already not scoring goals. They've not scored goals in a, in a recent for, in recent games, but before that, they were scoring goals. They were pressing high up the pitch. They were nicking the ball back. They were scoring goals without Aubameyang. I don't think 
losing him is going to where they finish will not be dependent on the fact they've lost Pierre what, Emerick what Aubameyang. I would say as well is that I think even saying all of this I think he'll probably do really well at Barcelona but that's nothing to do that doesn't make it a mistake by Arsenal getting rid of him because it's a totally different place a totally different I mean look at him before he how he was playing before he got his contract it, he was he was in blistering form back then I, I want to be clear though I'm not against Mikel Arteta's decision to get rid of Aubameyang I'm merely stating that I I think it is a sad indictment of his managerial style that it's another player on the list of arguments that I couldn't resolve. And for me, it's a young up and coming manager. That's what we like to talk to him about. We always talk about the coaching. I am yet to see him as a man manager in any real regard. It's all good bringing in young players who are trying to make their way in the world of football and trying to trying to get a new contract or prove to the Arsenal fans that they want to play for this club. It's something totally different when you've got a player who's been there and done it and you're trying to get the best out of them. And I haven't seen that yet. All of the older players at Arsenal, he's, he's not got anything out of. No, to be fair, that's a, that's a really good point because, and we're sort of seeing a slight trend of maybe insecurity might might not be the right word, but the threat that a young manager feels from older, experienced players. Because, as you said, Hugh, Arteta's based his... We, we see him as someone who brings through young players at Arsenal. That's been the core of that team. It's a similar situation with Frank Lampard, isn't it? That's what we've he's credited with why why Everton wants him because he can bring through young players situation at Chelsea with Lampard as soon as David Luiz stood up to him he was gone mm. he felt that threat and got rid of him so there's a there's a bit of a trend that's going there Eddie Nketiah and Alex Lacazette into their last six months the pursuit of Dusan Vlajevic ended up with him going to Juventus instead that was a good few weeks wasted I think on the search for a new uh, centre forward for Arsenal I mentioned it already but do we think this January and the fact that Tom that no one came in destroys their top four hopes I don't think it destroys it because partially because um, who are their rivals for the top four Tottenham Man United West Ham and none of them did business which makes you think well they've that's a signal of intent they're doing it they're, they're in pole position now to get top four. What it tells me more is about uh, the, the approach of Arsenal as a football club because, you know, it's it, Mikel Arteta's now been in charge of that club for five transfer windows and they have not signed a single forward in that whole time. Um, they've got three, three goalkeepers, seven defenders and four midfielders and zero forwards, which is strange to me when you think, uh, especially the fact that with the uh, Aubameyang situation, this was coming, you know, they needed it to happen. And we know Arteta was in the States talking to the Cronkies, trying to get a striker in and he's left with nothing. So uh, there is no doubt he will be... <laughs> Verging on furious at the end of uh, at the end of January for how it's come, how it's fell out for them. Um, so maybe Arsenal um, not severely impacted, but we'll see how the top four race goes. Spurs, you mentioned they signed Dejan Kulusevski, Rodrigo Bentancur, both from Juventus. They said goodbye to Tanku Ondombele, Giolo Celso, Brian Hill was loaned, Deli Ali's gone as well from that main group. Jack Clark, I know, went on loan too. Are there signs this January that 
Antonio Conte, over the long term, is going to get what he wants from Tottenham Hotspur? Not really. I don't no. think so. Do they, any of these players particularly think, excite you, sorry? Do, they, do any of them think they're as good as Harry Kane and Son level? To me, they're just... Tom talks already about them shipping out a lot of players. I mean, I've watched Benton Kerr play. He looks like a talented player, but who's had ups and downs in his career, and then he ends up at Tottenham. Like, it's a classic Tottenham signing to me. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't strike me as... Finally, they've got a top-level manager and they're bringing in top-level players. I think, I mean, look, if there is to be some sort of Serie A revolution, it seems that you can get a little bit more value for money in Italy as well at the moment. And Tottenham, if they're going to shop in a slightly different market, around the £20 million mark, I think that that going for some good players in Serie A who are at a good age, the likes of Kulisevsky, could be big for the club. I think they'd have to do it pretty much in every single area, except maybe the forward line. But I, I, I do think if he gets those numbers, it ultimately it raises the quality at Tottenham for me. That These two signings, you know, there's inconsistencies in both of their games, but I actually think it still raised the individual quality of the squad. If they do that five or six more times, I still think he's in a much better place. And I think he backs himself as a coach to get the best out of these players who maybe we perceive as inconsistent. Yeah, it's an improvement, definitely, but I just think it's not quite... They're not signings on the same level that Antonio Conte is of a manager, basically, mm, is yeah, all I'm yeah, getting yeah, at. Yeah, for sure. You know, they're not a Son or a Kane where you go, wow, that's a that's a top-level signing. And they might also be players, let's be honest, from other leagues where this sounds a bit cliche and a bit old-fashioned, but they might not hit the ground running straight mm. away, which, again, in this top-four race, like Tom's talked about, it's wide open and... Tottenham could have made a signing that was a real statement and gone bang straight in they, they might be good but to me they're kind of 8 out of 10 rather than 9 or 10 Liverpool would have nabbed them before they could exactly confirmed. exactly that's a sign if they're not fighting off Liverpool foot to sign them then that's probably a bad sign I think I think the window ends Antonio Conte will talk tomorrow ahead of um, ahead of the game at the weekend the FA Cup game and he'll answer these questions and I think he'll he won't be overly effusive I don't think but I think he'll be he'll be positive um, and that's because there has been a signal that this club is going to to back him and do what they can which isn't probably what he wants but is is to the to the full extent of what they could do in that tra- transfer window the problem is that how many january signings actually do well <laughs> straight away get off the mark um but i agree with tom in that they when you think of where they were a week ago and where they are now the squad is improved because they have they weren't going to play la celso delhi and and Dombele. they just weren't going to be involved anymore so to have bentanker and kusilevsky in now is a positive. Manchester United didn't do anything in terms of incomings. Uh, West Ham United, the same. Um, so, so how do we see the top four race lining up now? We've all become slight secret West Ham fans, haven't we, on this podcast? But I'm probably the most uh, guilty of that, if you like. And as as a part time West Ham fan, I am furious on their <laughs> behalf. I mean, th- this was their chance, right? We've we've talked about those clubs, Arsenal. Manchester United not doing it as much as Arsenal and Tottenham, but getting rid of players, players they didn't want because it's a bit unsettled. They've got managers who are still working things out, trying to get the best. West Ham don't have that. They've got David Moyes. They've got a solid foundation. This was their chance. They had such an obvious area of the pitch where they needed to strengthen up front and they didn't do it. I found it fascinating listening to David Moyes and the quotes about, we went in for three world, world record bids or uh, club record bids, sorry. 
And it was interesting that I think it was on the club's YouTube channel and it struck me a bit as, you know, this is some PR, Dave, you come on, you're better than this. But look, maybe it's true, maybe it's true, but it's not the first time we've heard that from West Ham, the transfer windows and these big bids for players that never happen. It's just so frustrating that as a neutral wanting to see something a bit different in the top four race, this was West Ham's chance and they missed it completely. I've heard David Moyes called Moisey and Moyes and all. Never Dave, actually. <laughs> Never Dave. But well, maybe when you're a I'm so disappointed in him. Yeah. I, it's, I give him first name, first name credit. There's so many Davids at West Ham that I think that's, that's probably why. As soon as you start talking about Daves and Davids, people are like, this is Sullivan, Gold, or Moyes. I know. Yes. But it's frustrating, isn't it? Like, you know, as, as journalists and as neutral fans, this was their opportunity. If they'd gone out and got a striker, you really feel that could have galvanised and taken them to the next level. Like, it's a hell of a lot of pressure on Mikel Antonio. And, you know, Moyes again also talked about, oh, you know, we've got Jared Bowen who's in great form. And very briefly, there's an excellent profile of him on the Times website now by Gary Jacob, which you should all read. But that's, again, that's a lot of pressure. And he's not a forward. He's not a he's not a striker. He's not going to tap those goals into the box. He's going to create them. And I ju- it's just so frustrating. And I know West Ham f- fans feel the same, probably more angry than I am at Dave and the boys <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I completely agree and it felt a little bit like football manager of or the, the FIFA the video games <laughs> when submitting these massive massive bids for players that weren't likely to come in the first place and, and even as well I just the Calvin Phillips offer I wonder a little bit whether it's uh, preparing for Declan Rice yeah I thought go. that yeah I thought um, that as well I just thought it was bollocks to be honest I thought it was a bit of PR <laughs> nonsense like I'm not being funny Calvin Phillips is is Calvin Phillips is, is of Declan Rice's level to me like they both played in central midfield for England at the Euros they both shone they're both slightly different players but in the similar position why is Calvin Phillips going to go to West Ham that's not that's not no offence to West Ham, but they're going to have to pay absolutely shed loads for him. Whatever they well, sell. 50, 50 million apparently was the bid. And I was sort of like, well, that Come is on. that should roughly be the amount of money that gets you Calvin Phillips, in my opinion. What well, Leeds fans will tell me differently, I'm sure. Yeah, they would. But, but for me, it definitely, I mean, they were never going to sell him in January. That's ridiculous. But Exactly. But, but that's but, why but, it's bollocks, isn't it? Yeah. But, it, but, it, but it, it did suggest to me, I agree with you, Tom, that they are thinking about life after Declan Rice. Yeah. But, but. But as Tom said, the the priority, even, you know, I, I get trying to prepare for life without Declan Rice, but the priority was was so clear yeah. as day that the striker was what was was what they needed desperately. And Observe. fifty million pounds. If you've got fifty million pounds to spend, you'll probably be able to get a pretty good striker well, to come uh, in. Observers of the Bundesliga and the Premier League can't believe that Burnley managed to get Val Veghorst and West Ham didn't yeah. because they, they they figured he would have been a perfect foil for the likes of Fernals and Lanzini and 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 Bowen. Uh, he's got that physicality and an eye for a goal, and he's gone for a pretty bargain price to Burnley. Yeah, and I mean uh, on the Declan Rice thing and the narrative around like preparing for life without him, like West Ham. Fine, this is maybe a bit naive, but they should be... The flip side of that is if you get a striker in, you maybe nick that fourth place and maybe you can then sit down with Declan Rice in the summer and go, want to wait it out a bit longer? We're a Champions League side now. Yeah. Like, you could be a club legend. We'll pay you six figures a week. Like, we, we'll try and compete with the big boys. And because football's different now, players like Declan Rice have seen other players move to Manchester United's and Chelsea's and things and it not work out. So unless you're going to get an offer from... Manchester City and a promise from Pep Guardiola that don't worry son I'm going to be around for the next five years which is not guaranteed 
there's every chance that he could have he could have stayed, signed a big new money contract at West Ham, and instead we're talking about oh preparing for life without him. They could have. It was such an open goal. Excuse the pun, but <laughs> it really was. And I'm I'm just so disappointed as well as a neutral that we've not got a kind of rejuvenated West Ham going into the end of this season. Uh, let's look quickly at the bottom of the table. Newcastle United, as you might expect, the big spenders. In fact, the big spenders in the Premier League. Uh, they brought in Kieran Trippier, Dan Byrne, Bruno Guimaraes, Matt Target, and Chris Wood this January. Have they saved themselves? Is this enough to stay up? No, but they've given themselves a good chance. I think we talked about it with Martin, didn't we, on Monday's show. Those experienced names, those Premier League players, and again, this is slightly old-fashioned and a bit um, a bit backwards-looking, but let's be honest, they know they know the league. A lot of those players know the scrap down the bottom. They instantly improve Newcastle in that sense. Is it guaranteed? No, I don't think so, because it's going to be very tight between those four teams down the bottom and there's every chance that other clubs Everton, Brentford could be pulled into the scrap as well but they've given themselves a chance I think they've made sensible signings which actually at the start of the window if you'd said to me they were going to sign Chris Wood, Kieran Trippier Dan Byrne, players like that I'd have been A, surprised And, and on the floor uh, laughing uh, No, I would, have been, I would have been surprised and actually quite impressed because to me that's quite astute I think, I think they've given themselves a massive chance mm. with it and also the interesting thing is um, whether consciously or not, it's very <laughs> it's very similar business to what Man City did when they had the takeover. You look back and, um, I mean, they signed uh, Sean Wright Phillips, they signed Wayne Bridge, Craig Bellamy, Nigel De Jong, players very slightly of the same sort of ilk that, that, um, that Newcastle have done this month. And... Uh, and we know the players like Jesse Lingard that they wanted to get done as well. It's interesting, though, you, you touched on it earlier, Hugh, with, with Burnley. I mean, they, they lost Chris Wood and um, got Weg, uh, Weghorst. And I was in um, Amsterdam for the Euros and remember seeing him come on the pitch. And I hadn't seen him too much before then. And I am not surprised Burnley's social media type <laughs> team sold the transfer and sold him as... Uh, Godzilla because that guy is massive <laughs> absolutely massive um, so the bottom three after this transfer window what do we think it's going to be it's very tough it'd be interesting to see what Roy Hodgson does obviously mm. at Watford but I still think they're in a very difficult position so I I'll say they'll go down I think Dean Smith's obviously improved Norwich and we've talked about them and the credit he deserves but I still think they've not they've not got enough um, and they'll have another dip very tough. I'm going to back Burnley to to stay up, and I'm going to say Newcastle going down. See, I'm one of these people with terrible memory, so I can't even say. Well, I said this at the beginning. <laughs> of the season. Don't worry, we've Who all said different things. I've down. definitely said several different yeah. bottom, bottom three to the one I've just done. Uh, I think Burnley go, Norwich go, and Newcastle. Ooh. I think Roy can keep Watford up. Back in Roy. Yeah, I think Newcastle yeah. are going to stay up after those signings. Actually, yeah, I think it's going to be a big boost, big month for them. A couple of them will hit the ground running yeah. and they'll be all right. We're going to talk about one club wants to come into the Premier League for next season next, but they need a new manager to make it happen. Will it be the former Newcastle boss, Steve Bruce? Stay with us on the game. West Bromwich Albion have parted company with their boss, Valerian Ismail. I think we alluded to this in the last uh, episode of the podcast. Albion were fifth in the championship, but... Um, Vertical football, I think, is what they called it last season at Barnsley. It hasn't necessarily transitioned as well to the Hawthorns. The 2-0 defeat at Millwall at the weekend was his final game in charge. 
He won just 12 of his 31 matches in charge and the club is now looking for an eighth head coach since September of 2016. What do you think went wrong for Valerian Ismail? A number of things, really. You have to remember back in the summer, he, he wasn't the first choice. There were disagreements at the club about which way to go. Chris Wilder was looked at. Um, I think Luke Dowling, who was at the club at the time and then subsequently left, was quite keen on going down the Wilder route. The owners didn't want to do that. There were young managers looked at, including Lincoln's manager, Michael Appleton. Um, and then it, it kind of felt like they ended up with Ishmael, which is never a great sign for any kind of managerial change, particularly in the summer when you've got that chance to start afresh, start in a new league and you're kind of like the third, fourth choice. And to me, it's also a worry when Ishmael was widely praised and we loved Barnsley last season for everything they did. But I always think it's interesting and a bit dangerous when you have a team that are of a certain level lower than West Brom in terms of ambition, in terms of size, in terms of stature, and you take their manager and their manager brings with them the club captain and then subsequently signed Daryl DK as well, who was at Barnsley last season very unluckily got an injury in his debut for West Brom. But to me, that's always a worry. So from the start, it didn't exactly smack of this is going to work. But interestingly, Hugh, you riffed off the stats there. They actually did start really well. They were unbeaten in their first 10, six wins, four draws, and those kind of tactics were paying off. I I spoke with a good friend of mine um, is a West Brom fan, and he was saying that actually at the start of the season, the kind of high press, the vertical football was working. The problem came when, as the season progressed, teams worked out how to play against that because they played against it with Barnsley before. But also they realised that unlike Barnsley, who didn't want possession, West Brom are a bigger team and with better players. And they kind of just said to them, have possession. West Brom had lots more of the ball. And that vertical football doesn't work when you're like that. You know, Barnsley were literally kicking it and giving the ball away in order to then press further up the pitch. That doesn't work when you've got the you've you've already got possession of the ball and teams are sitting deeper. There's no space to attack in behind. There's no there's no pressing to be done up front, and there just didn't seem to be a plan B from Ishmael, and that's when the bad run of form started. So it was a combination of factors, but I do think as a club it was a messy decision, and they're in a bit of a bind now. They're fifth in the in the championship, which you know it could be worse. Mm. They're in a, a playoff spot. That you know, long way to go in the season. Steve Bruce is the name uh, being mentioned most, um, who I think now everyone wants to, to do well, having seen what he went through at his beloved Newcastle. Um, but, but do you think he would do a good job, former Birmingham City and Aston Villa boss, of course? Yeah, I do, actually. I mean, he's got he's got a good record of going into clubs and having an impact immediately. I mean, you kind of get a feel from from outside of his personality. And, you know, you don't get to... It was his thousandth game, wasn't it? His last one at Newcastle. And you don't get to that level without being a successful coach. And I think at that, at that level as well, he's been exceptionally good. And... You can't really, I don't think anyone can really uh, use his Newcastle experience to compare to how he'll actually do um, or could do at West Brom. And you can, you know, you can ask Everton fans about that with uh, their experience of an ex-Newcastle manager. The problem with, the problem I see at West Brom at the moment is kind of scattergun thinking a little bit. I mean, um as Tom referred to with the the hiring of Ishmael, I know it's easy in hindsight, but it, it was odd. I mean, West Brom have never been, you know, the Swansea loner of the championship or anything <laughs> like that. But they they 
did tend to play, you know, the last time they went up uh, under Bilic, you had Dean Garner, you had Matthias Pereira. They they played attractive football. Yeah. So trying to get up with Ismail Ball wasn't really, didn't ever really look too didn't ever really look like the right approach to be honest um the interesting thing as well to point out Hugh is that on literally 30 minutes after Ishmael the announcement of Ishmael being sacked was confirmed West Brom also put out a statement that Ron Gourlay was uh, had been promoted to CEO I think he was working as a consultant before then Ron Gourlay was at Man United he was at Chelsea and his last job was at Reading so a sort of similar little rung below West Brom but he's not remembered too fondly at Reading Uh, he was there during the period of Paul Clement's um, management they made some some expensive signings that didn't work out Sam Baldock it never really worked and there were a lot of promises made at the time that weren't fulfilled in the end so It'll be interesting to see where this goes and whether it does seem like an attractive prospect to to Steve Bruce. The problem with Bruce, though, and I, and I like Steve Bruce and I think he's underrated in terms of what he's done in the game in management, is that you think of West Brom, they, they are a big club, and we talk about this a lot with managerial appointments. A lot of it is about perception. And they're a club that's had Allardyce, that's had Pulis, that's had Pardew. Steve Bruce, that's Connect Four. They've nailed it in terms of the <laughs> inverted man, inverted commas, boring manager bingo. You know, it's that that's 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 full house. So that that's a slight problem, and it's counting against Steve Bruce to me because I think he will suffer that a little bit if he was to get the job. In that, a lot of fans will immediately be a bit like, "Oh, here we go again." Whereas, you know, as, as Tom said, under Billich, they played good football. They were good to watch. They had some exciting players, and I think that's where West Brom fans expect to be. Can I just point out as well, this was in in uh, my report on the story today, but uh, it was Bill Edgar's brilliant stat um, given to me. If, if Steve Bruce is to be appointed manager, he'd be the first since Ron Saunders to take charge of West Brom, Villa and Birmingham. And of course, also, he's got history, Steve Bruce, of managing rivals because he had Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United mm-hmm. and Newcastle and Sunderland. Mm. Of course, he, yeah, he did. Um, and speaking of Sunderland, you've brought me very nice They are looking for a new boss as well. Um, Lee Johnson, of course, gone. Roy Keane, their former manager, uh, Sky Sports pundit, ex-Manchester United captain, very entertaining, very outspoken. But during his time in management, he was criticised. He was criticised by some of his former players as well after they'd retired. Is he the right person to go back to... Sunderland, which still looks like it hasn't quite got itself, you know, back into shape behind the scenes. I don't I don't care if he's the right person, Hugh. <laughs> I, I can't wait to see him sat in his suit and tie and telling us how when I got the call, it was like a sailor to the siren call of a mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, just like Roy Hodgson. Sorry for anyone who doesn't know that's a reference to Roy Hodgson. His perception, as Tom was just talking about, has has changed a lot recently. We've Mm. got to know him as a character quite a lot. And we've got to remember, he's not been in management since 2011. And that was at Ipswich, which, as we know, wasn't a successful period. And the the time at Sunderland was, he got them promoted and they might be looking back on that. And I would love to see him back in management because it would be fascinating Mm. to see how that unfolds. But the success at Sunderland, part of that, I remember um, 
Niall Quinn, who was chairman at the time, talking about what Keane did there. And he said he did something I didn't think was possible. He brought the winning mentality of Manchester United to Sunderland Football Club. But he did that by bringing a lot of a lot of people from the club, including not just players, but, but of course Dwight York went, which tells you how long ago how long ago he was there, and I think John O'Shea as yeah. well. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. He can't do that now, and he's been a long time out of the game, and and maybe it's because he doesn't want to. He did that excellent interview with David Walsh, and maybe he. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to seem too needy, but but the way of sort of wording, I'd like a I'd like another crack at it, doesn't sound like he's desperate and hungry to get back into it again. Well, this is my view. I mean, we see so many managers out of the game. What have you been up to? I've been visiting coaches around the world. I've been finding out mm. new training techniques, new new diet and strength and conditioning techniques, and finding out how other coaches in other sports work. And I've been absolutely desperately trying to improve myself as a coach so that when the call comes, I will be ready. Now, over a decade later, as we've watched Roy Keane on our screens every weekend, tear into Premier League players, you know, he will always have that aura. He will always have that huge reputation, but it doesn't feel like he has put coaching at the centre of his um, career. So suddenly to get a job at a, a team like Sunderland that needs promotion, maybe not this season, but but that is the goal. It's a bit like when Leeds were in League One. I mean, it's just like you, I mean, I'm not saying they're the same type of club, but what I'm saying is they are absolutely desperate to be promoted, much like Leeds where They just felt like there's no way a club of our size should be in that division. Is he going to be the person to deliver it when there are so many good up and coming modern coaches out there? For me, it would be a strange decision. You never go back, Hugh, do you? Surely. I mean, this is... The, the thing is, Roy Keane is such a unique character and Sunderland, in lots of ways, are a unique club and they came together in that period and were unstoppable. I mean, I think he took them from like the relegation zone to promotion in that season. It was unbelievable. And speaking to a friend of mine, he said that's one of the best times to be a Sunderland fan in recent memory. It was unbelievably fantastic, exciting, chest puffed out as a fan. You were confident again. And... There's just a bit of wistful thinking here, isn't it? It's a bit romantic. And the problem is, you said, Hugh, there that Sunderland need to get out of League One, maybe not this season. They do need to do it this season because that league is so, so difficult. It can change all the time. The clubs that come down, it's so competitive that arguably they do. You know, they brought Jermaine Defoe in. That feels like a, this is six months. Let's make this happen. Let's get out of this league. They brought in Patrick Roberts, Jack Clark. They've met, they've spent money this season. They've got the squad there, but to me, Keane would just be an overly romantic decision after Defoe, which is another kind of romantic decision. But that you know, getting Jermaine Defoe in League One for six months—that's a—that's a sensible, clever move. Getting Roy Keane back to get your promotion again—that doesn't feel like a sensible move. And to me, they've ha- they've got the romance of Jermaine Defoe. With the manager, they need to go pragmatic and go for someone like Grant McCann, who we talked about on uh, Monday's show, got Hull promoted last season, knows the league, will come in, do a sensible job and will give them a shot. And I, I said at the top of this that I, I would absolutely love to see him him there, see him back in management because it would be fascinating. If you were a player of Sunderland and you'd watched Roy Keane 
on Super Sunday and yeah. on Sky Sports, um, you know, describing uh, Kyle Walker as an idiot in a car crash, uh, saying about David De Gea that he would have been swinging punches at him yeah. after a game, and talks about you know leaders and characters and all, all these things. It's I, I'm not entirely sure I would actually want him to be my manager. No, and I get the sense, like, following League One over the last few seasons, as I have, obviously, Sunderland feel like quite a brittle club at the minute that you have to be very careful with. And that's where there's a difference between managers and players. You can sign the old school players and bring them in, but as a manager, you have to nurture it. You have to be very careful with it. Lee Johnson was quite a fiery character um, and was proved unpopular with fans. I just think that wham, bam, Roy Keane, shout at everyone, let's do this, come on. That's not what Sunderland need right now. They need gently nurturing and a bit of love and a bit of solidity and a bit of you know clever tactics, and I'm just not sure that's Roy Keane. Well, if you want to get a little bit of a deeper insight into Roy Keane, he did a very recent interview with David Walsh of the Sunday Times, so check that out on the Times app. And remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, then make sure you're subscribed. You can also uh, rate us or leave us a review. Much more still to come. Celtic went top of the Scottish Premiership last night after an incredible 3-0 win over Rangers in what was a fantastic old firm derby. Uh, Michael Grant joins us, our Scottish football correspondent. How are you, Michael? Yeah, I'm fine, you. What a night that was. I think it was interesting. It felt like the timing of the game in particular, but the quality of the match itself and the atmosphere in many ways helped reignite this fixture, a great fixture in world football to the wider British public consciousness. How did you feel about the game as a, in, in the wider context? Yeah, and I think there's been quite a lot of attention recently on the fact that uh, 
the old firm game is diminished a little by the fact that neither club is letting in away fans. So what you had last night was 60,000 Celtic fans. Earlier in the season, it was 50,000 Rangers fans at Ibrox. Now, personally, I think that does detract from the game as a spectacle. To be honest, Celtic were so dominant last night that I wonder if some of their fans might have liked an away, an, an away section to kind of taunt and uh, take the mickey out of um, last night. But, but look, I mean, it was certainly, the atmosphere was crackling. It was, it was deafening. And of course, the match went so emphatically in Celtic's favour that... Um, it was pretty. It was a pretty joyous and kind of triumphant night for the Celtic support. The match itself, um, there was lots of, of credit given to Ange Postacoglu, the Celtic boss, and the Japanese revolution that he's got, if you like, at Celtic at the moment. How much credit do you think he deserves for the way that they ripped into Rangers, especially in that first half? Enormous credit, because the way they won is exactly the way that um, Celtic have been playing under him this season there. You saw the tempo, you saw the urgency, the, the movement and the pace. Um, and that is what Celtic supporters call an ange ball. Now, there's been, you know, you can take that with a pinch of salt and opposition fans have kind of mocked it a little bit. But when it clicks, it can be devastating and it, and it can... Um, it can tear teams apart. What you tend to see is that they're very strong in the first half of games especially, and they do begin to tire a little bit in the second half. You saw that last night. And and if, if you don't have an, a, a comfortable lead, then they can sometimes be, be vulnerable a little bit. But um, I think that will improve as players' fitness uh, and, um, you know, match sharpness continues. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a new side, Hugh. You have to... It also bring in the fact that I think of the starting team last night, nine of them were signed either in the summer or in January. It's extraordinary the the speed of the transformation at Celtic, and um, their hit rate in terms of signings has been extraordinary. I mean, all the the four Japanese players have signed have all contributed to varying degrees. You know, Joe Hart's been solid at the back. Cameron Carter-Vickers has been solid. Juranovic was arguably man of the match, the the right back that they um, uh, last night. Jota up front. Leila Bada, who's only 19, 20-year-old Israeli. Terrific uh, impact that these guys are, have made. And a lot of that is down to um, Postacoglu, certainly the Japanese players, because he managed there before. Some will say, they're only a point ahead of the top, that Celtic took control of the title race last night. How do you see it? Well, they have control in the sense that they have a narrow lead. Um, I, I think we should know better than to read you know, too much into it. I mean, I think Rangers will not drop an awful lot of points. They will hope that Aaron Ramsey makes a, a big impact for them when, whenever he's uh, fit to come in. Um, but I think you can't be blind to how convincing uh, Celtic look. I mean, Celtic have only dropped one, uh, points in one game since the end of October. There's depth to the squad. They convince um, they've got a manager who seems very calm. I, I was impressed by Stephen Gerrard's calmness when he came to Rangers. It looked like he could handle the old firm environment and a club that size. And I get the same feeling from Postacoglu, who's never really looked ruffled um, since he came in this season. So I, I put it this way, I think they've, they're going to take a hell of a lot of stopping Celtic. Now, you know, I, I wouldn't entirely rule them out, rule out them stumbling at Motherwell at the weekend. You know, which could again swing things back into into Rangers' favour. But I think um, Celtic are clearly the favourites now for me. And um, just last night, you thought 
you just get a sense sometimes of when the balance of power is changing, not just on a night, not just kind of ruling out or, or describing it as a, a bad night at the office for Rangers. I think there was something a little bit more significant than that at Parkhead last night. Uh, was there anything more significant when it comes to maybe a Rangers demise? I mean, they won the league by what, a long way? Was it 25 points last season? And Celtic, uh, for the reasons you've mentioned, have bridged the, the gap in terms of quality between the two teams. But are Rangers still heading in a downward spiral? Or is, is anything maybe to do with the change in managers? What do you think? Yeah, I do think um, Rangers are struggling. Uh, whether it's a spiral, I don't know. But they've only taken five points from the last available 12. Now, you know, that is uh, very damaging in a title race when when neither team should be dropping much points because you know that the other will be picking up um, uh, maximum points. Van Bronckhorst came in and, and really did well at the start when he replaced Gerard in November. They started with seven straight wins, six consecutive clean sheets. Now, he hadn't lost a game until last night, but they have been looking pretty unconvincing recently. They dropped points at Aberdeen. They dropped points at Ross County. Uh, they had a narrow late win, uh, late winner against Livingston. They're conceding far more goals, Hugh, than they did last season. They've conceded 21 league goals, which is three times more than they conceded in the whole of last season. So they are shipping goals and, and they seem to be playing more uh, counter-attacking games against, uh, you know, in the more difficult fixtures, trying to absorb pressure and hit on the counter-attack. And frankly, it's not working. Uh, it didn't work at Aberdeen. Uh, they were they were fortunate to get a, a late winner and uh, beat Hibs. It certainly spectacularly failed last night because Celtic were Celtic's attacking sharpness was far too much for them. I think Van Bronckhorst has, has got a lot of questions to ask, and I think people are wondering um, whether they are in a decline um, from uh, Gerrard's uh, domination of last season. Michael, I wanted to ask briefly about Joe Hart. You mentioned him already, but. He's a player that almost been in the wilderness for a long time, having been England number one and at Manchester City. How, how has he been doing? Has he been, you know, he made a few high-profile mistakes at some points in European games, but does he seem settled? Does he seem like he's rediscovering some of his form and his confidence? Absolutely. We've spoken to him a few times uh, in terms of post-match uh, or pre-match media stuff, and he has um, he's been an excellent professional. And you know, he he's um, he speaks very well. You guys all have known him obviously from from his career in England, but um, he has looked very settled and comfortable. Supporters have taken to him up here, um, no question about that, because he's given them a a solidity that they didn't have last season. They brought in a Greek goalkeeper, uh, Barkas, who really was poor, and he was a kind of... It was just a kind of weak base of the defence. Quite quickly, Hart began to make the kind of important game-changing saves that Barkas simply didn't. He's not been flawless. As you say, there have been a couple of errors, but by and large, he's been a dramatic upgrade on last season. And he made an important save last night, uh, which denied Rangers a potential equaliser. Um, it was probably his ball when Arfield came through, but you know it, he had to get there and smother it at his feet. So um, Hart has been an excellent base for um, for Celtic's uh, play because they play out from the back, and um, you know uh, the second goal last night, which was you know, all the focus was on the finish from Hatati, but it's a beautiful flowing move right from the back down the right side, and it pulled it pulled Rangers apart, and then the finish was. Uh, 
was pretty majestic, to be honest. I just wanted to ask you about the lack of away fans in this fixture. Is there a resolution coming anytime soon? I mean, for those that don't know, what, why has it happened? Why has it happened? Well, Rangers initiated it three, four years ago, something like that. Their argument was that uh, we can fill Ibrox with our own season ticket holders, so why give 7,500 of those tickets to Celtic? Um, now, that was in a period when Celtic were routinely battering them and there was a suspicion that it was really done because Rangers didn't enjoy so many kind of Celtic parties at Ibrox. Um, now, whether that's true or not, nobody will ever admit it. Um, certainly, of course, both clubs can easily fill out the ground. They could probably do it twice over with their own home supports. But you have a kind of tit-for-tat thing, so Rangers do it, Celtic copy it. Earlier this season, Rangers did away with all away supports. It was down to about 750, 800. Now it's down to nothing. You know, the problem you have is both boards don't want to lose face because a lot of their supporters say it's fine. You know, we we have a better chance of getting tickets. You know, why do you, why do you want them in? But I think there are supporters on both sides and a lot of neutrals who think that the game is diminished by this because you want the spectacle and you want the kind of reaction and counter-reaction of two sets of supports. I mean, that's what football's about. Mm. And although the two games this season have been great in terms of atmosphere, but they've not been what they would be with away fans in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Michael Grant, uh, the Times Scottish football correspondent, thanks for joining us on the game. Now, Alison Rudd joins us this Thursday morning on the Game Podcast from her hideaway in the Bahamas. Alison, how are you? <laughs> I wish. I'm very well here. <laughs> now, you've done a fantastic interview in the Times uh, with the Brentford boss, Thomas Frank. Told the story of watching his fellow Dane Christian Eriksen, of course, collapse with that cardiac arrest at Euro 2020 and how he came to bring the midfielder back into the Premier League. Um, what was it like speaking to him? Well, he's a he's a top bloke, is uh, Thomas Frank. Although I don't, <laughs> it turns out he spent three and a half years living a hundred yards away from me, and I didn't realise it. And I'm not really um, as good a journalist as I think I am because it didn't occur to me to say to him, "Did you notice I'm the house with the flag?" <laughs> the flags, the flags. He must have seen the flags. <laughs> So next time I speak to him, I will say, do you remember a house with the flags? Um, but we ended up arguing over the best cafe in my village of Barnes. So, uh, and we disagreed over it. So he's a very affable, you know, no, no airs or graces at all. Bloke, one of those that answers every question. I spoke to him on Tuesday and I said, can we start with Christian Eriksen? It's, it's the big story of the week. And he was really happy to go into how he was in his mother-in-law's summer house in Denmark when um, Ericsson collapsed and it you know, gives him goosebumps re- recalling it because he, he coached Christian when he was 16 years old and um, he knew straight away that he was a special talent. And two years later, he was playing for Denmark. He was never spiky at all in the interview, but I suppose the most feisty he got was when I said, you know, there are people, and we've discussed it on the podcast, that are not going to be entirely comfortable when they see Ericsson actually playing competitive football in the Premier League. It will make them feel strange uh, knowing that he he has, you know, a, a cardiac monitor in his in his body and it's not impossible that something could happen. And he was very, very, very clear that Christian's told him he's never felt as physically fit 
ever. He's not trained as much ever before. He's feeling in absolute peak condition. And Thomas Frank was saying what really matters is that that Ericsson believes, you know, he, he feels he's is he's destined to play in the World Cup this year. It's something he's completely committed to. And that's the key for Thomas Frank is that he'll be managing a player who has a clear target, has no doubts himself, something he desperately wants to do and feels fantastic. So he has no qualms about it whatsoever. But it, and he, but he's very sanguine about the fact that, you know, when Ericsson makes his first, well, plays his first minutes for Brentford, it's going to become the Christian Ericsson show and it will, mm. it will be a big deal and it will be emotional for everybody because everyone knows what happened to him it will feel strange and he says it'll be fine it will be the Christian Eriksen show and after a couple of weeks it'll die down and people will talk about how well he's playing and how well Brentford are playing because then we'll start to think about how he's fitting into the team and um, is it an astute signing that will ensure Brentford do not go down because that is clearly still a, a possibility that they could being the smallest club in the league on with the smallest wage bill. In the interview, he talks quite a lot about the relationship he has with Ericsson, which is forged in the Danish youth setup. Did did that strike you as a big part of the move, both from Ericsson's point of view and from Thomas Frank's? Yes, because he joked. I mean, we put the headline on it. I asked Christian, what's up? Want to play for Brentford? And he said that sort of, he did say it, but he said it in a jokey voice, as in clearly we had more things to discuss. But he had that privileged position to be able to spend time. He's been talking a lot over the phone to Christian Eriksen about what the move would mean, down to the, you know, the very details of where he might live, the types of places near the the ground. I'm sure Christian will come to Barnes and live opposite me. So you can look at at the flags every day. But I mean, he's been, he's in that position where it's not a business, business chat. It's a chat about, with friends, with people who know you very well. So you can spend longer discussing how it will work. And one thing that didn't go in the interview, because you know eventually you run out of space, because I had a very, very long chat with um, Thomas Frank, was that shared Danish values that they have. Danes speak such good English, it's easy to forget they have their own identity and their own culture. And Thomas Frank has brought some of those values to Brentford. He says, you know, that the ability to get on with anybody and everybody is a very Danish thing because they're a small country that want to be successful. And you can't do that unless you get on with bigger countries. So they've, as a nation, they've learned to be cooperative and get get on with people, get the best out of people, think about what people want and need. So he's had these long conversations with Christian about this is how it works at Brentford. And that will sound like being at home for Christian Eriksen. Plus, you know, it's the Premier League, so he will get the level of fitness he needs. So, so it's de- it's definitely a big part of it that you know, any 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 avenue of discussion has been able to be looked at because they know each other, and he probably felt incredibly comfortable, Christian Eriksen, because um, you know he's he's a, he's a world famous footballer. But if you're talking to someone you've known since you were 16 years old, you and who knows your family. You trust them with the questions you ask and believe the answers they give. And it will, it just makes so much sense on every level because um, although he is a world class player, Christian Eriksen, I think in a football sense, he will slot in really well to the Brentford team. They will, they will make the runs 
for those beautiful passes, insightful passes he makes. I mean, his his assists stats are phenomenal as well as his clever goals stats. Finally, Alison, um, it doesn't matter what you really think about the situation, whichever side you're on, when Christian Eriksen goes back onto a pitch in the Premier League, will that be a moment of history in English football for you? I think it will, because will anyone ever forget what they felt when they either watched it live or came to it soon afterwards? It was it was scary and it was, then it became very emotional and almost beautiful the way that Ericsson's teammates reacted and the fans reacted and the officials reacted and so on. It was it was it sort of brought everyone together, made you realise that football is something that brings nations together rather than divides them and we forget that when there's violence and so on. So in some, in an odd way, it was a beautiful moment. And nobody thought at the time, well, he'd be back playing in the Premier League soon. No, no one, no one would have thought that. So it sort of makes you think, wow, isn't, isn't medicine amazing that this can happen? And isn't the Premier League amazing that they don't have rules that prevent it from happening? Because he can't play in Syria because they won't let him. And we love him in the Premier League. I think he's one of those players that transcends uh, club affiliation. So. I think anyone who watched him play for Spurs, even if they hated Spurs, would have loved watching him. He's a very sort of uh, quiet person who lets his talent speak for itself. And the fact that his career is not over and he will be gracing the Premier League. I think, I I mean, I don't know. I think you'd have to have a... I just don't think you'd love your football very much if it didn't move you, to be quite honest. I think it will be fantastic well I'm sure we'll react to that moment when we see Christian Eriksen in a Brentford shirt Uh, you can read Alison Rudd's interview with Thomas Frank in the Times right now check it out on the Times app or online Uh, Alison enjoy swimming with dolphins or whatever you get up to on the beach today I appreciate you joining us on the podcast (laughs) I'm cleaning my windows of course Finally, it's FA Cup fourth round this weekend. I'm off to Old Trafford and both the city ground. I will see you there. There are big games. And and the good thing about this weekend is, you know, there are still giant killings on the cards. Um, Big game at the Agborough. Kidderminster Harriers of the sixth tier hosting West Ham. Hartlepool go to Crystal Palace. Boreham Wood go to Bournemouth. Plymouth Argyle visit Chelsea as well. Um, And we also get a first glimpse of a Frank Lampard Everton team against Brentford and all Premier League tie as well. What are you looking out for, Tom? I can't. I mean, I'm going to the uh, Kidderminster game and I can't wait for it because it's real, you know, it's it's what the FA Cup's all about. You could have said, (laughs) just say the magic of the FA Cup. Yeah. No, magic is banned. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that because it's just. Yeah, it's going to be massive, and you know, for for Kidderminster, it's worth so much. I think it's with prize money and broadcast fees and everything, it's worth half a million pounds for them. But I'm going to unashamedly plug an interview um, I've done, which is uh, Plymouth's game against Chelsea. Uh, Jordan Houghton plays for Plymouth now, but he was in the Chelsea academy and at Chelsea until 22 years old. Um, so it's a bit of a homecoming there. Um, he's got a nice story so I'm looking forward to seeing that what about you Tom Hartlepool for me yeah not just because they knocked Lincoln out but I think they've had an amazing run Um, they've had an interesting season they've not always been in great form but the FA Cup has kind of been the real highlight 
I would love to see them give Palace a game. I think Palace are a talented side this season and they've got a lot of young, exciting players. I'm slightly worried it could actually be one of those where it's not that much of a surprise. Mm. Um, So I hope Hartlepool give them a game. I also hope that Cambridge beat Luton at home. Cambridge, obviously, of course, provided us with one of the stories of the FA Cup so far. I would love them to get through to the next round to have another shot at getting another big club after, let's be honest, home to Luton is is not the tie you're looking for having got this far. I've got my eye on the two Manchester clubs this weekend. I'll be at Old Trafford, but Middlesbrough definitely have a chance. You never really know what Man United you're going to get, especially if there are changes and obviously they haven't played for a while. Um, Fulham going to Manchester City, I think, could be one of the shocks of the round. Fulham, as we know, have been absolutely brilliant. I just think, you know, them one game, nothing to lose. I know Manchester City are brilliant, but again, I expect lots of changes. Uh, Players that have been away, especially South America, international duty. So how much will that affect? them with Zach Steffen in goal no doubt you know you never know what's going to happen in fact he might not even be in goal because the United States played last night um, so Zach Steffen probably not going to be there this weekend so there you go um, I, I've got my eye on Fulham this weekend mainly One very interesting thing is you look at that tie Tottenham and Brighton that'll be an interesting marker as to how teams value the FA Cup I think because those are two teams that are, could win this competition yes obviously other than the big, the big three but It'll be interesting to see what teams those managers put out, whether Conte goes for it and says this is a chance to win a trophy and similarly whether Potter's thinking is is this an opportunity to get through or whether both of them make changes. That to me will be a good representation of where we are with the FA Cup. And let's not forget as well the holders uh, taking on Nottingham Forest who obviously knocked out Arsenal in the last round which was one of the shocks. So, uh, Listen, I, this one's interesting for me because I went to the last one, the Arsenal game and there was a certain blue Lamborghini parked right outside the city ground. Um, a Coventry boy, James Madison. I thought you didn't drive to games. <laughs> hey, Coventry boy, James Madison, who'd gone to see um, some mates at Forest take on Arsenal. And then uh, at half time in that game, pulled out the hat, Leicester Forest. So I think he'll be looking forward to that. So hopefully he does play. And uh, yeah, I'll have a close eye on that, obviously being at the match. Um, but loads to look forward to. We'll react to all of it on Monday, of course. Another big weekend ahead of us and the AFCON final to boot. Um, but make sure you are subscribed if you're enjoying the podcast. You can also subscribe for more award-winning journalism to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Monday. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.